0: So the passage for today's sermon is taken from Mark 14, verse 12 to 31. Let us all read together in the can of three. One, two, three. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woo to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed? It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing, it broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said empathically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Church, this is the word of the Lord.
1: Praise be to God. Thank you, Bella. You guys may be seated. Love you, church. Uh, I think I haven't seen that for a while, except at the end of the service. I want to let you know. I do love you, and I really, really pray for you. And I think this is also, in a way, saying that I'm not going to be here for the next couple of weeks, but doesn't mean that I love you. You guys going to be in my prayer, and I trust that you guys are still going to be at church even though I'm not here. Amen. 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 Okay, those of you who say amen, you're responsible to God. All right. Now, I think it is no secret that I enjoy watching Korean drama. Most of you knew that. Okay. But what most of you do not know is the kind of drama that I like to watch. Because most of you assume I watch Crash Landing on You, The Air Inheritors, you know, My Shy Boss, and stuff like that. I do watch them, by the way. But that's not my kind of drama. The kind of Korean drama that I really enjoy is actually one on crime and law. Okay. I enjoy watching thrillers more than feelers. Now, and here's one of the many lessons that I learned from those dramas when a homicide happened, one of the first details the investigators seek to discern is whether the murder was an act of sudden anger accident or whether it was premeditated. Now premeditated crime has significant implications for the investigators and for the potential punishment that the court might impose on the offender. Because if the crime was unplanned, the offender might receive, let's say, a couple of years of prison sentence, right? But if the murder was planned, the offender might stay for a lot longer. However, planned or unplanned, can we agree that murder is still murder and they're still guilty? See, in our passage today, Jesus predicts the betrayal of his disciple. One of the disciples, by the name of Judas Iscariot, will betray him by premeditation. We know this from our in the book of Mark, remember, how Judas actually went out and seeked. Shave praise in order to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So, and right now, Judas is waiting for the opportunity, the right time to betray Jesus. But surprisingly, he's not the only one who will betray Jesus because Jesus will go on to say that the rest of the disciple will also betray him out of fear. So all of Jesus' closest friend will betray Jesus. And then sandwiched between these two uh, predictions of betrayals, we have Jesus having the Last Supper with the very people who will betray Him. It is very interesting. We will learn why. Okay? And by the way, you don't invent this kind of story. Think about it. If you're trying to create a movement with a large following, you're not going to invent a story where the top leaders of the movement betray the leaders of the movement, Right? You're not going to invent that. The reason why this story is written is because it actually happened. This is one of the reasons that we can't trust the Bible. Okay? And this story is recorded, I think specifically, listen. Yes, you can learn. Everyone can learn from this story. But I think this passage is particularly addressed to people like me. People who think they are close to Jesus. People who think that they are following Jesus. People who call themselves disciples of Jesus, this passage is particularly addressed to us. Okay? So let's look at it. I have three points for my sermon the depth of sin, the breadth of sin, the cure for sin. Let's look at the first one the depth of sin, First 12 to verse 16. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher say, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciple? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, Let me give you the context first. Passover is the most important celebration in Jewish tradition, okay? This is the most important one. This is where they they celebrated Independence Day. So basically, they celebrated how God set them free from the hand of Egypt, okay? If you grew up in Sunday school, remember what happened in the story, right? You remember how God set them free from Egypt and brought them to the promised land? How did God do it? By killing all the firstborn. And then God sent the angels of death and killed all the firstborn, but when the Israel family had a blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the angel will pass over the house, and they will be saved because of that. So now they celebrate Passover every year by having a family meal with lamb as the main course. And I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus came to Jerusalem during Passover. Why? Get this. Just like it took the death of firstborn to set Israel free from Egypt, it will take the death of another firstborn to set people free from the slavery of sin. Just like it took sacrificial lamb to save Israel from death, it will take the sacrifice of the Lamb of God to save God's people from eternal death. And what's funny about uh, Passover, I just found out when I studied about this, Passover can only be celebrated within the city of Jerusalem. So you're not allowed to celebrate it outside of Jerusalem. So what the Jews will do during Passover, they will gather to the city of Jerusalem. And historian by the name of Josephus estimated that there are about two million Jews gathered during Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Two million Jews. That's a lot of people in one city. And Jesus and his disciples are also there to celebrate Passover. So his disciple asked Jesus, Jesus, all right, we're going to have this meal, right? But we are going to have it? And then Jesus replied, Go into the city, and you will find a man carrying a jar. Follow him, and wherever he enters, that's where we'll have our Passover dinner. Here's my question. How on earth are you supposed to find a specific man in a city crowded with two million people? Right? And Jesus said, Here's how. Look for a man carrying a jar of water. Now, this is interesting, because in those days, it's very unusual for men to carry a jar of water. It is a woman's work, not man. And one commentator wrote, this is what he wrote, seeing a man carrying a jar of water is like seeing a man carrying a purse. It is very unusual. And I thought, obviously, this commentator did not live in the same day and age as I do. Because today it's very common for us to see a man carrying a purse. We even have some of them in church. No names mentioned, but he usually sits at the front row, but today he hits in the second row. So the disciples follow Jesus' instruction, right? And everything unfolds exactly like he told them, which tell us something about Jesus. There's nothing about Passover and whatever's going to happen next that is coincidental. Jesus is not a tragic hero, get caught up in an event beyond his control. No, he knows exactly about God's plan, about his death, to the very last detail, and he embraces it. He's in absolute control of every single minute leading to the cross, and that is why we can trust him to sustain us today, even when our life appears to be crumbling. Jesus is in the absolute control of every single event in our life. But look at what happened next. Here's where it gets tense and interesting. Verse 17 to 20. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, Who is it I? Right. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So imagine this, imagine this scene, right? I try to imagine it, and this is very horrific. So Jesus is having a meal together with his supper, they're having a good time, and they're retelling the story of Exodus because that's what you do during Passover dinner. And suddenly Jesus shocks everyone. He says, Guys, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me right now. Now, most likely during that dinner, there also are also other men, women, and children beside the twelve. So at this time, the betrayal could be anyone, right? It could be anyone in that room. But then, you know, they begin to ask Jesus, Jesus, is it I? Is it I? Is it me? Is it me? Who's going to betray you? And then Jesus gets more specific. It is one of the 12 who will betray me. Now imagine the, the horror of that, okay? I try to imagine, right? Like, there's a big difference if I say to a church, you know, 50, 60 people, guys, one of you will move church and betray me. But if I say, you ask, who is it? You ask, who is it? And I say, it is one of the Arasa leaders. You'd be like, whoa, one of the Arasa leaders? Who could it be? And here's what's amazing. None of them thought it was Judas. Like we know, right? We definitely know, "Uh uh-uh, it's Judas Iscariot. But among the disciples, they have no clue it's Judas. Do you know why? Because Judas is one of the most respected disciples. How do we know? He's the one in charge of carrying money for the disciples. You don't trust, I mean, you don't trust a dodgy guy to carry your money. You know what I mean on that? So most likely Judas is one of the most respected ones. So the hour of the story, you know, you know, which RSA leader will move church and betray you, yours, it won't be the new one. It won't be Mike and Kim. It will be the older one, like Martin, for example. it will be like. You don't expect that. You don't see that coming, right? So the news of this betrayal shocked everyone in the room, but not Jesus. Look at verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It will have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, even though the news shocked everyone, Jesus is not surprised at all. He said before the foundation of the world, God already planned my death." God the ordained my betrayal but for the man who will betray Jesus Jesus say woe to him it would have been better if he had not been born now this is one of those verses where we can see God's sovereignty intersect with human free will the fact that God had ordained Judas' betrayal does not relieve Judas of the responsibility of his evil deed we must get this God's sovereignty neither cancel human freedom nor relieve human responsibility. And I know, right, every time we talk about Judas, here's the question, right, that everyone comes to your mind, you know. If God is sovereign, why Judas is responsible? But, 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 yes. uh, Those buts are valid. But tonight, we're not going to talk about those buts, okay? Another sermon for another time. But if you're curious and you really want to know the answer to your but, Ask Edric. He has all the perfect answers. But here's what I want you to consider. Here's the point that I want, you ask, want us to really, really think about tonight. Why does Jesus not identify Judas? I mean, it could have been easier, right? He, he could have solved the problem by simply saying, it's one of the twelve who will betray me. Judas, it is you. Repent now or burn in hell forever. That would be easier. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is deliberately ambiguous. Here's why. Because Jesus wants every disciple to look into his own heart. Because the truth is, there's Judas in all of them. The truth is, there's Judas in all of us. Let me explain to you what I mean. See, Judas is the type of person who will follow Jesus as long as it benefits him. So the moment Jesus no longer benefits him, he's like, Mm-mm, I'm out. I'm going to sell you Jesus. In other words, Judas never followed Jesus for Jesus. or no, Judas followed Jesus for Judas. Let me tell you another story in the Bible of the man by the name of Job. Do you remember that person? The Bible says that he's a great man. He's faithful to God. And at one point, God has this conversation with Satan, right? And God is bragging about Job, actually. God says, hey, Satan, hey, dude, have you checked out my servant, Job? There's no one like him in all the earth. He's so faithful. He's amazing. Check him out. And you know what Satan say? Here's what Satan say. Does Job fear God for no reason? No. He served you to serve himself. He served you, God, because you protected him. You blessed him and you made him rich. Now, do you see what Satan is saying? Satan is trying to accuse Job in front of God. God, Job does not really love you. Job is only using you for his benefit. If you don't trust me, God, here's what we do. Take away your hand upon him. Take away your blessing and your favor from his life. Make his life miserable. And I guarantee you, he will walk away from you. What happened next? Another sermon for another time. The point is, every time we go through life, a period in our life where it goes really badly, it is as if God is saying to us, Christian, listen, now, let's see why you serve me. Are you serving me? Or are you serving me for yourself? Let me put it another way. Now, last time remember we talked about how Mary finds Jesus beautiful while Judas finds Jesus useful. Here's my question. How can we tell whether we find Jesus beautiful or useful? Do you know how? It's not, it's not when everything's smooth in life. It is not when we get what we want in life. Oh no, no, no. We know whether Jesus is beautiful or useful. When life goes. Out of control. When we do not get what we want in life, what is our response? Because if we say to God, no, why would you allow this to happen to me? I do not deserve this. Look at what I did for you, God. This is not fair. I deserve so much better. I'm out. We're Judas. Because we're simply seeing God as useful. But if we say to God, this hurts. I don't understand what has happened to me. It's painful. I'm disappointed. And right now, I feel like giving up, but I can't. Because I know you are using this situation for your glory and for my good. So even though I do not understand, I will never, ever let you go. we marry Because we see Jesus as beautiful. Now Listen carefully. It is how we respond to disappointment that determines whether we embrace the gospel or not. So it's not what you know in your head. No, no, no. How would you respond to disappointment when life goes out of control? When nothing that you expected happened, what is your response? That's how you know whether you embrace the gospel or not. Because Judas represents a religious approach to God. Okay? A religion approach to God basically says, God, I obey you. I will do A, B, C, D, E, and therefore I am accepted and now you owe me. That's religion. But the gospel says, I'm accepted because of Christ and Christ alone. I did not deserve anything, and yet I am accepted, and therefore, God, I owe you everything. And the reality is, while we embrace the gospel, the truth is there's always Judas in all of us. There's always this part of us that think that we deserve better. Am I right? There's always this part of us that think, you know what, because I've done this, God, and now it is your obligation to bless me and give me what I want. We're not Judas, but there's Judas in us. And Jesus is deliberately ambiguous in not pointing finger to Judas because he wants to provoke the heart searching in every disciple. And at the same time, this is also Jesus' kindness final act of kindness toward Judas. Jesus warned Judas, Judas, if you go ahead with your plan, there's no turning back. There's no turning back. So repent, Judas. Repent. Jesus loved Judas. He wants to convict Judas, but Judas ignored Jesus' warning. And my hope tonight is none of us ignore Jesus' warning. So that's the depth of sin. But let's look at the second one, the bread of sin. Verse 26 to 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went up to the Mount of Olive. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Type A, don't panic. I realize I skip verse 22 to 25. We will come back to it, okay? So after dinner, Jesus and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives. And now Jesus dropped another bomb because if before Jesus said, one of you will betray me, <laughs> now Jesus says to all the disciples, actually guys, all of you will betray me. And then Jesus quote an Old Testament scripture where God said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Note, who is the one doing the striking? Who is the I here? It's not the devil. It's not Roman government. It's not Judas. Do you know who's the I? God. God said, I will strike the shepherd. Who? Jesus. In other words... It's always been God's plan from the very beginning to strike Jesus. And when God strikes Jesus, the ship, the disciple, will be scattered. But look at verse 28. It's beautiful. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus is not only sure of the disciple's betrayal, and he will die at the cross, but he's also sure of his resurrection. And when he knows that the disciple will betray him, He remained faithful to them. Can you see that? He says, "This guys, you will betray me. Guarantee, hundred percent. Buy's what you do. Meet me in Galilee." I mean, how kind, how wonderful is our Savior? There's nothing about the betrayal of disciple that surprised him, and he already made provision for the disciple even before they betray him, which tell us a beautiful truth. Our salvation does not depend on our commitment to Jesus, but Jesus' commitment to us. It does not depend on our faithfulness, but to Jesus, but Jesus' faithfulness to us. Because here's the fact. My commitment, your commitment will waver. But Jesus' commitment to you is perfect. And of course, there's one person who do not like what they hear. You know who that is? Peter. Like, mm, mm 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 Peter, like, I object. Jesus, everyone else might deny you. Everyone else might walk away from you. But I ain't me. I am different. I will be faithful to you no matter what. Even if I must die, I will not deny you. I mean, this is a guy who is full of self-confidence. I mean, he's so sure of his faithfulness to God, that he said, Jesus, I know you're God. I know you always get it right. But this time, you get it wrong. And yet what we see happen in a couple of weeks' time, Peter will betray Jesus. You know why? Because Peter put his confidence on himself rather than God's word. And that is always recipe for disaster. Every time we put confidence on ourselves rather than God's word, it is misplaced confidence. It is never, never going to go well. And all the disciples, when they hear Jesus say that, the disciples are like, yeah, me too. We will not walk away. But in a few weeks' time, we'll see. Every one of them will betray Jesus. So what's the lesson for us? Okay. What is there for us to learn here? Now, many years ago, the London Times asked a series of prominent writers to write an essay on what is wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton wrote a simple telegram for his answer that says this. Dear sirs, Sirs, I am, sign, G.K. Chesterton. Do you know what he's saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying that deep inside of every person in the universe, there is the problem of sin. Let me put it a different way. What is wrong with the world is not something out there. What is wrong with the world is something in us. There's Judas in all of us. Now, we must get this. You know why? Because I think like the disciples, we often think that we are better than other people. We like to think that we're not Judas. We are better than Judas. So for example, when we hear people commit particular sin, we say, oh, no, 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 no. I will never do that. God, I love you. I will never do that, not in a billion years. I am too good to do what they did. But are we? Now, let me be honest with you, all right? In the last few years, we are bombarded with news of many prominent pastors who got into scandals. Okay, I think we heard them. We heard of a well-known pastor who had an adulterous relationship and kept it a secret for many years. And one day, he was wildly exposed, and the world found out about it. And then we heard of another well-known pastor who used church money to fund his lavish lifestyle, and then he was sent to jail because of that. We heard of a pastor who used his spiritual authority to abuse many people in the church, and he got fired. So in the last year or two, the news of scandals between pastors, sex scandals, financial corruption, and spiritual abuse have become too common. And my first reaction, whenever I heard those candles, like, how could they? It is despicable. I will never do that. I know better than to commit those sins. But am I? Because the truth is, I could easily beat them. Because there's a seed of sin inside of me that could lead me to do what they did. So if I think that I am beyond those sins, I am making the same mistake as the disciples. I do not know my own heart, because the truth is we should never think that we are beyond the reach of any sin. We should never think that we can withstand any temptation by our own strength, because the moment we put confidence in ourselves, that is the recipe for disaster. It is extremely deadly. So, in other words, what we can see from this passage is Judas and the disciple—they actually represent us. Maybe we haven't walked away from Jesus. Maybe we're still in church. But it's not because we're better than them. The only reason we haven't walked away from Jesus is because God is restraining us with His grace. You and I have no reason to boast whatsoever. Let me put it this way. Imagine me and Edric decided to rob a bank. Okay. We watched Money Heist and thought, yeah, we can do this in Sydney. Right? But before we do it, we seek a wise counsel from my beloved friend named Okay, So we come to Jejeb, and we ask, Jejeb, this is our wonderful plan to rob a bank. What do you think? And Jejeb say, are you nuts? I'm not going to let you do it. It will ruin your life. But me and Eric, we're so convinced of our plan, we ignore him. And we sing, Bella, ciao, 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 ciao. And on day of robbery, Jejeb is waiting for us in front of the bank. He's not going to let us rob the bank, and he, gra- he grabs both of us by our shirt. But because Adric wears a uh, cheaper shirt, his shirt ripped off, get ripped off, and then he gets free, and then he goes on with his plan. He carries through with a plan, he kills a guard, and he gets arrested. But not me, because my shirt is more expensive. It did not rip, so I did not get free from JJ. So he managed to stop me. So now, when I visit Edric in jail, what do I say? Do I say to him, you moron, why would you do that? What's the matter with you? Of course you're going to get captured. No, right? Because the only reason I'm not in jail is because Jajab is restraining me, and I happen to wear a nicer shirt than Edric. I should be in jail if Jajab did not stop me. And this is what God is doing in our life. Listen. If we can put our faith in Jesus today, if we can still wake up as a Christian this morning, it's not because we are able. It's because there's the grace of God that's sustaining us every single moment. So therefore, if we're not for God's grace, we will not be where we are today. If we're not for God's grace, we could have been Judas. So don't think for one second that we are better than those who are not Christian. Because knowing the bread of sin shall make us less confident in ourselves and more confident in God. Now Look at the third one then, the cure of sin. Verse 22 to 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now this is the weirdest Passover in human history. At the same time, the most beautiful. And what's interesting, what I find interesting is Mark sandwiched this story in between two stories of betrayals. You with me on that? Do you know Why? One commentator put it, put it this way, because Mark wants us to know that the sin that necessitates Jesus' death is not someone else's sin. It's not the sin of tyranny like Nero, Hitler's talent, but his own disciple, Peter, John, you, me. So every time we celebrate Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating God's forgiveness for our sin. Let's look at what happened, Okay. Usually, usually during dinner, during the Passover dinner, the father, the head of the family, will retell the story of Passover. So the father will say, my family, let me tell you a story. We were slaves who had no future. We were oppressed and in pain. But the Lord delivered us out of Egypt and brought us into the promised land with milk and honey. And he did so by killing the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But the Lord told us to slay a lamb, eat the lamb, and shed the blood of the lamb on our doorposts, And the lamb became substitute for our sin. The lamb became substitute for God's punishment for our sin. So when the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he passed over the house. And we were saved because of it. And that is why we're eating this Passover meal as a family. Now, that is the standard Passover script. But during this Passover dinner, Jesus changed the script, okay? He totally changed the script. So as they're eating eating together, Jesus break the bread, give it to them, and said, eat, guys, this is my body. And people are like, wait, what? This is not in the script? And then Jesus took a cup of wine, gave thanks over it, give it to them, and he said, drink it, guys. This is the blood, my blood of the covenant. What do you mean? This is not on the script. What do you mean, Jesus? And Jesus shocks everyone at the dinner. Now, do you know what Jesus is saying when he says those words? Here's what he's saying. All this time, you've been celebrating Passover to celebrate how God set you free from the hand of Egypt. But no more. From this point forward, tonight, we are eating and drinking this meal to celebrate what I am going to do. I'm going to redeem God's people from the slavery of sin. I am the ultimate Moses. I am the ultimate Exodus. I am the ultimate Passover. But do you guys realize there's something missing in this Passover meal? And what is missing in this Passover meal is actually the most important part of the Passover meal. They have bread. They have wine. But they are missing the most important element. You know what that is? The main course. The lamb. Why? There's no lamb on the table because the Lamb of God is at the table. Jesus is the main course. So don't miss Jesus' point. Here's his point. Instead of having lamb as a substitute for your sin, I will be your substitute. I am the Lamb of God who take away the sin of the world. I will pay the death penalty for sin. The judgment of God over sin will follow me. So that whenever people put their faith in me, the death, the angel of death, the punishment of death will pass over them. If you are covered in my blood, you will be safe. And that is why then Jesus gives the bread and said, What? This is my body. With another Jesus is saying this: when you eat this bread, you are saying that you are partaking in my life. You become one with me. And this is the reason Jesus lived as human. He lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life that we could not. And yet he died as a criminal receiving God's punishment of sin. Why? So that when we eat the bread that we might partake in God's triumphant, in Jesus' triumphant over sin. So that means when we eat the bread of communion it's our way of saying, Jesus, your life is my life. I am part of you. I become one with you. This is what the bread of communion means to us. But then when Jesus gives the cup of wine and says, this is my blood of the covenant, it refers to the payment of sin that Jesus will make. Because the law of God demands for every sin, blood must be spilled. For every wrongdoing, blood must be spilled. And we learn this in the book of Hebrews, remember? How throughout generations, blood of the Lamb is poured out year after year after year after year. But in the, in the book of Hebrews, the book, author of Hebrews said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who gave His life once and for all. So now because Jesus' blood has been shed, there's no longer need for any Lamb to die. Because Jesus is the ultimate Lamb. Of God. So when we drink the cup of communion, we sing the blood of Jesus has forgiven us of all our sin. God is no longer angry at our sin because Jesus has paid for them. Now, J.C. Ryle put it this way. The two elements of bread and wine were intended to preach Christ crucified as our substitute. There were to be a visible sermon appealing to believers' senses and teaching the old foundation truth of the gospel that Christ's death on the cross is the life of man's soul. This is the meaning of Holy Communion. So every time we celebrate Communion, we are celebrating Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for us. And that is why, church, Holy Communion is only for those who believe in Jesus. At this time, some people might object, right? But why do we need a sacrifice? Why do we need Jesus to die and shed his blood for us? I mean, why can't he just love us? Why can't he just forgive us? Why what's up with this ancient, primitive, bloodthirsty God who needs to be at peace with blood? And these are a fair question, but here's what I want you to consider. We mentioned this earlier in the book of Mark. All real life changing love is substitutionary sacrifice we have never loved a broken person a guilty person a person who have needs and we do not change if they need change it will change us because if it costs us nothing then that person does not need to change I mean there are people like that who does not need to change All right, there's only two or three of them in Sydney good luck finding them but if we ever try to love someone who has needs, who has brokenness, who has wounds, if we ever need some, love someone who needs a change, it's going to cost us. We can't love them without sacrifice. Because when we love them, their trouble, their wounds somehow become ours. Or all real life changing love is subsidiary sacrifice. Let me give you one example that I stole from Tim Keller. Let's say you're one of the cool kids in your uni, right? Of course, you go to our site. You must be one of the cool kids, right? And there's a classmate who is uncool and nerdy and no one like her. She doesn't have any friend and she's a loner. So you try to be nice and be her friend. You know what happened next? The next thing you know, the cool kids, the other cool kids are coming to you and say, what are you doing with her? You should not hang out with her. She's a nerd. What's happening is, some of her uncoolness is rubbing off on you. You are not so cool, so cool, and you're not so cool anymore. Why? Because you hang out with her, and there is no way for you to diminish her uncoolness without some of it falling on you. You see what happened? All real life-changing love is always costly. It is always substitutionary sacrifice. So that is why what we have at the cross is not some bloodthirsty God. Oh, no, no, no. What we have at the cross is a God who loves guilty people, broken people. And the only way for Him to love guilty people, broken people, uncool people like us, wounded people like us, is for Him to do it through substitution. Our sin fell on Him. Our brokenness fell on Him. Our wound fell on Him. Our guilt fell on Him. He got what we deserve. He took our penalty so that we might get what He deserved. See, at the cross, Jesus is loving us in a real life-changing way. He loved us so much to the point that He took God's divine justice for Himself so that you and I could be passed over forever. Let me close with this. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In the ancient time, when someone said, I'm not going to eat and drink until I, what happened is this, that person is making an oath. That person is saying, listen, I'm going to do this even if you kill me. I'm going to do it or die. So when Jesus says that he will not drink wine again until he drinketh new in the kingdom of God, Jesus is making an oath. He's making unconditional commitment. He's saying, I will not fail to bring you into the kingdom of God no matter what. I will finish what I started. I'm committed to blessing you. And one day I will drink this cup of wine again with you in the future kingdom of God. But watch what Jesus does not say. When we make oath, we say this, I will do it or I will die. When Jesus makes oath, he says, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to die doing it. That is the proof of Jesus' unconditional commitment to us. And think about it. Do you know to whom Jesus makes this unconditional commitment? Not to good people. To the very people who will betray him. He said, I'm going to show you my radical, unconditional commitment. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to make provision for you even before you betray me. And whenever we take Holy Communion, here's what we're celebrating. When we take Holy Communion, we are not celebrating our commitment to Jesus. We are celebrating Jesus' radical, unconditional commitment to us who put our faith in Him. We are celebrating the gospel. And this is the purpose of Holy Communion. See, every time we take Holy Communion, we hear God saying to our heart, I will not fail you. I am unconditionally committed to you. And I will bring you to my future kingdom. And I will do it not because you deserve it. I will do it because I have given you my life and my blood. And this is the food that our heart needs every single week to be able to live life worthy of the gospel. And this is why we do Holy Communion. Because we need to hear Jesus says to us, I am radically, unconditionally committed to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love, for your kindness, for your goodness toward us. For again and again that we forgot, Lord, that we do not deserve your love and we think that we are better than other people. Forgive us. But remind us again and again that we have Judas inside of us. And yet at the same time, you're not afraid of that. You died for the very people who will betray you. And that very act of self-sacrifice is what drew our heart to you. So I pray, Lord, that our heart tonight will be strengthened as we are reminded of the story of the gospel as we are about to partake the bread and wine, as we are about to do Holy Communion together, I pray that you strengthen our heart. Remind us of your unconditional commitment to us so that we also may be able to say the same to you, that we want to be radically committed to you, Jesus. And have us look to you because we know we can't do it. Our confidence will will waver. And yet at the same time, your commitment to us will not waver. So help us look to you and help us celebrate the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.